Hello, hello, folks. Mackenzie Taylor here, senior editor at The Texan, on another edition of The Texan's Weekly Roundup podcast. This week, Governor Abbott announces COVID-19 vaccine doses. Stats from the state show a record number of students are leaving public schools in favor of homeschooling. Abbott endorses in a special election. Another sanctuary city for the unborn is formed. The Supreme Court tackles census data in light of illegal immigration. And gun sales continue to skyrocket. Also, folks, for a limited time, go to the Texan.news forward slash mug to get a fake news stops here mug for the news junkie in your life this Christmas season. Don't miss out, folks. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Hello, folks. Mackenzie Taylor here with Daniel Friend and Isaiah Mitchell. Isaiah has a mouth harp on the table here, so at one point he might just break out into song. Is that correct, Isaiah? No. No. <laughs> You can't bring a mouth harp into the podcast room and expect us not to talk about it. What mouth harp are you talking about? Yeah. Is that not a <laughs> mouth harp? <laughs> what is that? It's an empty spot on the table. Oh, yeah. Okay. I see. I see. It's a. F- yeah. is it- <laughs> Man, this is a solid start to this podcast. Happy post Thanksgiving week, everyone. Oh, man. Well, gladly. Um, I only have to, you know, battle two of you this week for for uh, the podcast uh, integrity. So this will be good. See, but we're trying to make up for Brad's absence, so it's going to be a little bit harder. Just Got FYI. It. Okay, so you're yeah. compensating. Yes, yeah, overcompensating. Well, someone has to do it for Brad. That's true. Yeah, Brad is off this week with some long-awaited and well-deserved vacation time, but he still is on Slack. He's still messaging yeah. us. He wrote an article. Yes, he wrote an <laughs> yeah. article this week, and he's off. So. Bradley, this is our uh, calling you out publicly because you don't know how to take time off. Yeah, you suck, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really good. Stop working. Stop working. <laughs> Stop slacking with the capital S. Okay. Um, on that note, gentlemen, we'll actually get into the news. Daniel, I'm going to start with you. This week, the governor made an announcement, particularly relating to COVID-19 vaccinations and doses available here in Texas. That's a huge topic of discussion at the national level. Walk us through what's happening in the state. So now that it's December, 2020 is finally coming to an end, and maybe coronavirus is too. Maybe. I was going to say. That's... I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm going out on a limb too much and hoping being too optimistic. But uh, Abbott did announce that the CDC had allotted 1.4 million doses of a coronavirus vaccine for the state to be distributed to healthcare workers, um, uh, staff, and long-term care care facilities. Um, And so that'll start happening the week of December 14th. So pretty shortly here in just a few weeks. Um, coronavirus, coronavirus vaccines will begin to be distributed. Um, I believe I saw somewhere that Abbott had claimed that about 20% of the population in Texas had already kind of had the virus or was immune to it already. And so going forward, um, he was optimistic that we'd be able to get 1 million uh, vac- vaccinations per month, you know, with a population of 29 million people. Right. Um, it won't be too long before, you know, there's there's enough immunity built up that the cases go down and stay down for good. Mm-hmm. Um, at least that's the the ideal outcome of this situation. Right. Uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll see how long it takes to actually distribute these uh, vaccinations. Um, you know, what other logistical problems might arise, what other issues might occur in the future. That's all up in the air, of course. But that's what it's looking like. I like it. So in terms of, you know, who gets the vaccines first, what kind of what kind of people will be prioritized? So the governor has emphasized that um, he's repeatedly emphasized that this is all voluntary uh, for people who want the vaccination. Um, But there's obviously some people who are going to need it more than others, uh, especially right now. Uh, so the first ones, first ones in line to get it, of course, are doctors, uh, and people who are interacting in the healthcare field with coronavirus patients, um, where they're much more exposed to this. And then also, uh, with people in long-term care facilities, um, where they're interacting with the people most vulnerable. Uh, of course, the, the fatality rates are much higher for elderly than young people who there's been only a handful who have actually died when they're young and healthy. Um, so really kind of watching out for those uh, first two groups. And then the, the governor has also, uh, with the Department of State Health Services, 
Uh, they created an expert vaccine allocation panel, and they created several different guidelines um, to have priorities that they would follow. And so, you know, in addition to the doctors and the frontline workers who are at the greatest risk of contracting the virus, um, the other uh, priorities they say are, quote, uh, protecting vulnerable populations who are at greater risk of severe disease and death if they, if they contract uh, COVID-19. Mitigating health inequities due to factors such as demographics, poverty, insurance status, and geography. Data-driven allocations using the best available scientific evidence and epidemiology at the time, allowing for flexibility for local conditions. Geographic diversity through a balanced approach that considers access in urban and rural communities and in affected zip codes. And transparency through sharing allocations with the public and seeking public feedback. So those are the kind of the priorities that they've laid out. Um, so obviously the populations that they're concerned about um, are in, in addition to, you know, the doctors and the staff at long-term care facilities, whatnot. They also uh, are trying to prioritize people that uh, not, don't necessarily have insurance, health insurance, who might be uh, poorer. Um, and this is something that even the Dallas mayor has come out and uh, asked for, minorities to be prioritized in this. And so in a way, the governor's uh, plan is already kind of doing this, their priorities. Um, and then also, of course, uh, based on locations, if there's areas that are seeing an influx of cases, I'm sure they'll also prioritize those areas as well. Yeah, absolutely. And to you know, piggyback on what you just said there, Hayden Sparks, a reporter of ours from North Texas, reported earlier this week about, just like you said, Dallas Mayor Eric Johnson coming out and writing a letter to the CDC advocating that these vaccinations uh, be administered to, in terms of priority to minority populations, the letter said, quote, in my, it is my sincere hope that after healthcare workers, first responders, and the most vulnerable, you will consider making it a priority to deliver the vaccine to minority populations that have been disproportionately affected by COVID-19. So, Certainly all sorts of different um, rhetoric being thrown out there, but it seems like there's uh, some lockstep in terms of what the first steps will be. Mm -hmm. Thank you for reporting on that for us. Isaiah, coming to you this week and in the past few months, we've seen a lot of data surrounding students returning to school. Um, the different homeschool advocacy organizations have also come out with different data. The states come out with data. Walk us through your piece, uh, kind of breaking that information down. Sure. So we're pulling data from two places, as you pointed out. One is the state of Texas, the Texas Education Agency, and that data spans from 1997 up to the 2018 to 2019 school year. And the more current data has to do with homeschool withdrawals, meaning parents pulling their kids out of public schools to put them into homeschool. And that data comes from the Texas Homeschool Coalition which is a homeschool advocacy group that the TEA recommends officially on their website for parents to consult if they're trying to pull their kids out of public schools and put them into homeschool. So they've got this tool on their website that um, parents can use to get this process rolling. From you know, As I understand it, it's pretty simple. I have no kids to pull out of public school, <laughs> um, so I, I can only go so far here. But um, usage of this tool has jumped a lot this year compared to last year. So for a few months um, around the beginning of the school year, they were reporting record high increases in uses of the tool compared to the same months from last year. The biggest was in July, which is also probably not coincidentally when state coronavirus infection numbers peaked so far. And um, comparing July of this year to July of last year, the use of this online tool jumped 1,700%. Then after that, in August, uh, comparing August to August, this year to last year, there was a 400% jump and the same for um, September. So that's THS, THSC's data that's uh, a little bit more current. And it's not official, so they're going to have to wait until you know August of 2021 to learn state data on the actual withdrawals for, for homeschool this year. What we can look at is the state data from 97 to the 2018 to 2019 school year. And uh, I've linked the reports from the TEA on our article. I've also linked THSC's tool. I would recommend that you use, well, not the withdrawal tool. They've got an interactive map. It's a, it's a separate thing that just 
helps you digest the data. I would recommend using that one because the TEA website, much less the many hundred pages of the government reports, they're just, they're hard to read, which is unsurprising. So if you just want to know the numbers of students getting pulled out of traditional public schools to, uh, to go to homeschool, I would recommend using the interactive online map linked at the bottom of the article. But uh, the long and short of it is that in the 2017-2018 school year, that was when withdrawals for homeschool peaked in the history of the data that we've got stretching mm-hmm. back to 97. Um, that They absolutely topped out in the 2017-2018 school year. Withdrawals from traditional public ISDs also continued to increase, but there was a decline in parents pulling their, pulling their kids out of uh, public charter schools. So... Uh, if not for that decline in charter schools, the 2018-2019 school year would have beaten out the previous peak the year before, 2017 to 2018. So um, it's a recent peak, and uh, the year following it was still really close in terms of student withdrawals. And all the, all the numbers are pointing to another peak for this year beating out two years ago in terms of parents pulling their kids out of public school to put them to homeschool. Yeah, absolutely. And we've seen, you know, a myriad of different ISDs throughout the state have to adjust their approach to teaching this year in terms of the pandemic, but also just in terms of seeing students, you know, have very difficult time with distance learning. If they're not going into school, they're they're like the failure rates of students are skyrocketing. And so really just having to watch these ISDs alter their method of teaching has been a huge part of you know, a lot of parents' rhetoric in terms of deciding to pull their children out of school. And some school districts are being very creative and finding ways to to solve the problem. And others are sticking more traditionally to, hey, we're going to continue with distance learning. Some are fully back. It really just depends. But I think that variance, um, you know, is yielding a lot of different results. So parents are taking matters into their own hands if need be. Um, thank you for covering that for us, Isaiah. Daniel, I'm coming back to you. This is this is kind of fun because we're post general election. We all love some political spice. And now that most of the races are over, our attention's really going to be turning to the Senate District 30 race. It's going to be a big deal. There are two fairly high profile candidates. There's already been, you know, a special election and now we're dealing with a runoff here. And the rhetoric being thrown around has been spicy the entire time. Um, but walk us through a big development this week and give us just an, a 30,000 foot overview of the race thus far. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it was a huge development cause it was kind of expected. <laughs> That's we very kind of expected fair. It a long time ago, to be honest. Um, <laughs> so this race in Senate district 30, if you remember back in August, of course, uh, state Senator Pat Fallon won the Republican, uh, weird kind of nomination thing to be the next congressman <laughs> in the fourth congressional district. Weird in that the precinct chairs actually chose the candidate yes. to represent their party. Yeah. Republican party precinct chairs were the ones voting on who the candidate would be. Yes. And I could go into a long explanation of that, but I'll spare you. Um, all that to say he was leaving a seat. So there's a special election for his seat um, since he's leaving at the end of the year or at the beginning of next year to be technical. Um, and so Several different candidates jumped into his race for Senate District 30. Um, now, the two notable ones, of course, right at the beginning were State Representative Drew Springer uh, from Winster. And then uh, you also have Shelley Luther, who is the Dallas salon owner who kind of rose to fame when she defied Governor Greg Abbott's uh, lockdown orders back in April uh, when she reopened her Dallas salon. And so um, – Right from the get-go, you kind of knew that you you had this one candidate who was kind of opposed to the governor and was protesting a lot of his COVID policies. Uh, on the other hand, you have a state representative who was kind of lock in step with the governor, kind of you know protesting some of the the stuff from a, a very more standard Republican line, mm-hmm. um, whereas Sheila Luther was coming from more of a grassroots, the lockdown is terrable, even Governor Abbott's policies are stupid, mm-hmm. um, was what she was saying. And so you had this conflict uh, between those two. Those two were the biggest names. Um, this is a very bright red district. Um, so there was a Democrat in the race. He received 20% in the open race. Um, and Shelley Luther and Drew Springer both received 32% with Luther about 100 votes ahead of Springer. Um, and that was in September, the, the end of September, I believe the 30th. 
And uh, so that's kind of the the 30-foot overview. Um, Now, at the time, Governor Abbott had still not jumped into the race. He hadn't endorsed one way or another. Um, he, He hadn't come out against Shelley Luther, um, and he hadn't come out in support of Drew Springer, though it was kind of expected that he would. Um, he didn't give any donations. He didn't even donate to Springer's campaign re-election bid for his House seat um, in October. Um, he gave to a bunch of other seats. Of course, Springer's House district wasn't really competitive. It was kind of presumed that he would win because it was, again, a very bright red district. Um but this week, uh, Governor Abbott did wade into the race and endorsed Shelley, or not endorsed Shelley, endorsed Greg. <laughs> I was going to say, what news are you seeing? Endorsed <laughs> Drew Springer. Let me get my name straight. <laughs> Abbott endorsed Springer against Luther. Yes. Um, and uh, so Luther kind of, you know, shot back against the governor. Um, she posted a picture uh, of Greg Abbott and Drew Springer on one side in a black and white, uh, them both wearing face masks. And then she posted her and uh, Donald Trump on the other side, not wearing face masks. And everybody made a a big hullabaloo out of that um, as well. Um, So that's kind of the, that's really the gist of what happened. Now, Abbott's jumping in the race. Um, It's kind of presumed that uh, he will contribute some of his massive campaign war chest to help Springer win this runoff election. Um, When I was looking at it, it it seems very similar to a race, a House District runoff race back in July that Brad covered a lot of in House District 60, where he had kind of this similar situation with a more of a grassroots candidate backed by conservative mega donors running against a uh, person who's backed by the governor. And you had that clash right at the last minute where Governor Abbott came in and ran a bunch of uh, TV ads on behalf of his endorsed candidate, um, kind of propping him up. And then his candidate managed to pull ahead by a little bit in the runoff race and win. Now, whether that same thing will happen now, that is yet to be seen. Um, Of course, the political circumstances between July and December are quite different. Um, So who knows how that'll play a factor into it. Um, And also, you know, an interesting thing that I'm kind of curious what will come of it. It might really amount to nothing, but, you know, Democrats can actually vote in this, unlike in the Republican primary runoff. Um, So how will that affect the race as well? Will they come out and support one of these candidates either? Both of them are Republicans. Um, Both of them are using rhetoric that Democrats generally don't like. Um, So it'll be interesting to see if they do anything in the race or not. Yeah, for sure. And I think in these kinds of special elections, turnout is everything. We always say that, but it really is. You don't know who's going to come to the polls. I mean, one of the big reasons Pete Flores was able to pull off a huge upset in his race for SC19 back in 2018 was because his team and teams led by and supported by statewide elected officials like Greg Abbott and Dan Patrick were able to mobilize Republican voters to get out to the polls in the special election when not everybody knows a special election's happening. It's not a primary or a general election that everybody knows is coming up. There's not some giant name on the ballot like President Trump or Joe Biden. Um, So it'll be interesting to see who comes in and turns out and which camp is more effective at coming and turning out their voters, uh, you know, their confirmed voters from last time. So we'll see what ends up happening there. But that'll be a fun when the date for the special election is when. So the date for the special election is Saturday, December 19th. And I believe that the early voting actually begins on, I want to say like, next Tuesday, mm-hmm. whatever day that is. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be interesting. going to be fun. Uh, always fun to have a little bit of uh, political theater thrown in on a, you know, in a December. How fun is that? Yeah. Isaiah, coming to you, there was another uh, town in Texas that made a big move in terms of, you know, uh, making a statement on abortion. Walk us through what happened this week and what's happened up to this point. Yeah, Ackerley in West Texas just became the 17th sanctuary city for the unborn um, in Texas. So uh, the the city council voted unanimously to outlaw abortion. They adopted a similar version of the ordinance that has been adopted elsewhere that, um, you know, as we've said before, operates with two enforcement mechanisms. 
The public enforcement mechanism works like most city bans in that the city can impose fines, but uh, they can't really collect these fines until Roe v. Wade is overturned. And the private mechanism, which is more immediate, holds abortion providers liable to surviving relatives of the aborted child and allows the relatives to, to sue for damages. And this does not apply to the mother. Um, that's one of many little contortions that the ordinance makes to, to make it through the law, existing state and federal law. Um, I, I noted in this article, in light of Lubbock, that um, this ordinance, like previous versions, opens with a series of legal facts and claims to help it squeeze through those loopholes in state and federal law. And um, importantly, it notes that Texas has never repealed its statutes against abortion. They've just moved them into other sections of the code. And uh, it refers to Texas case precedent, stating that such laws were made in place until the legislature repeals them. So the Texas murder statute still defines the crime of murder to include any act that intentionally or knowingly causes the death of an unborn child at every stage of gestation from fertilization until birth. Mm -hmm. And that's from the penal code. Yeah. So um, this is important in general for this ordinance. Um, but uh, it's important and relevant lately because in Lubbock recently, the Lubbock City Council voted unanimously against adopting this ordinance because they say they expected legal challenges. This was the same reasoning that they cited for refusing to consider the ordinance in the first place. And the only reason they had to vote on it publicly and reluctantly was because a petition gathered enough signatures from Lubbock citizens uh, to force them to a vote in accordance with the town charter. And uh, since they voted unanimously against it, it's going to appear on the ballot in the next uniform election. So <clears throat> it still has a chance in Lubbock and uh, in Odessa as well. One of the candidates for mayor in Odessa stated, you know, strongly off the bat that uh, he wants Odessa to become a sanctuary city for the unborn and also a sanctuary city for the Second Amendment. Um, first on his priorities was balancing the budget or something like that. Something unimportant. Something, <laughs> you know. something uh, minute like balancing the budget. That's good stuff. So in term and Lubbock is particularly uh, noteworthy in terms of the size of the town, right? I mean, we've dealt with a lot of like 17 Texas towns now have come <clears> out and done, you know, passed a resolution or an ordinance uh, along these lines. But Lubbock, you know, we, we keep bringing attention back to that because of the sheer size of the city, correct? Not just that, but also because Lubbock has a Planned Parenthood. And um, the Planned Parenthood in Lubbock is not performing abortions yet. They're performing abortion referrals, but um, they're, they're not performing abortions right now. They will come 2021, which is, you know, a month away. And uh, I don't know if they've got a particular date in mind. I, I can't quite remember. But, um, but yes, the size and the fact that they have an abortion providing company in town motivated a lot of state legislators and students at Texas Tech and, um, and Mark Lee Dixon, the brainchild well, no, the ordinance is his brainchild. Yeah. <laughs> the ordinance did not father Mark Lee Dixon. Um, yeah. The guy that initially came up with this idea, yeah, we shall say. Spearheading the movement. Spearheading the movement. Um, yeah, he, among others, were motivated by the, the coming of Planned Parenthood to town. It was actually a return after a state law since ruled down in court. Um drove them out of town back in the 20 teens and um such a long time ago a long a long time ago in a galaxy far far away <laughs> at the at the city council meeting councilwoman latrell joy um who had i think the least shallow arguments against the ordinance legally speaking noted that texas's dismemberment abortion ban was just ruled unconstitutional in the fifth circuit but ken paxton is going to have another go at it and uh, they're going to try and hear it on bonk in court this January. So that's still up in the air. And um, the legal challenges that the ordinance itself has faced only have to do with the language of the text referring to certain abortion providers as murderers. And that's what they went to court about. Danny wrote on this a little while ago. Yeah. Um, and after they tweaked the language, the lawsuit was dropped and both parties, you know, Pro-lifers and pro-choicers walked away thinking that each had won, which was kind of funny. Mm. But um, the law itself was not changed in the towns that it was adopted in by the time, you know, that the lawsuit happened. So 
I mean, in Lubbock, there would be a more significant issue of standing because there's a Planned Parenthood there. Yeah. And uh, we, we don't know how that'll end up because the ordinance has been written to to take liability off of the city for the ban. Yeah. They're not going to be really enforcing it as a hard ban unless Roe v. Wade is potentially overturned. For now, what it does effectively is just allow the relatives of unborn children to sue. So the city's kind of hands off about it. And um, anyway, you know, it'll, if it gets voted in, in the next uniform election in Lubbock, we'll see how it goes. I hate to steal the thunder from Ackerley in this whole segment, but um, <laughs> it's pretty cut and dry there. Yeah. <laughs> the city council voted unanimously and uh, the ordinance is effective immediately. So um, that's, that's about it for them. There you go. <laughs> Things are up in the air in Lubbock yet. Yeah. And we'll keep an eye on that yeah. and continue to cover it. Your coverage is so thorough. Thank you for making sure our readers are informed, Isaiah. Daniel, coming to you, let's talk some federal news. The Supreme Court this week, uh, there was some news surrounding the census, which has been a, a big topic of conversation and illegal immigration, all backlit by the you know impending <clears throat> departure of President Trump. Walk us through what happened this week. Yeah, so uh, probably a year and a half ago, I think was really when they started talking about the 2020 census and Donald Trump, uh, President Trump's plan was to uh, basically find a way to make sure that illegal immigrants are excluded from the census count so that they don't count towards the apportionment for redistricting purposes. Um, <clears throat> so that would really affect, you know, the, the states that have a high population of illegal immigrants, uh, namely California and New York are two very high, high population areas with, or areas with a high population of illegal immigrants. Now, Texas is also uh, a state with a high number of illegal immigrants as well. So it also affect the number of representatives in the state of Texas. Um, and so he's kind of pursued this uh, policy and tried finding different ways uh, to basically accomplish it. Um, and so, you know, he went back and forth through different uh, processes. Uh, first, he was going to make sure that there was going to be a question on the actual census uh, about citizenship. Mm hmm. Um, but then that policy was versed course. I think it, I think that was due to a court thing, but it could have been something else. Anyways, that did not happen on the census. And so he instructed the departments, the other departments under the executive administration to work with the commerce department and the census bureau, um, in providing the data necessary to determine who is and who is not a legal citizen of the United States and who's a legal resident. Um, and so, um, one of the things that has happened since then, of course, the census has been delayed quite a lot because of the coronavirus pandemic. So that just complicates everything uh, by another tenfold degree because the census department is supposed to get the census to the president by the end of the year, December 21st. D 21st. 21st is not the end of the year. 31st <laughs> is the end of the year. Despite us wanting it to come sooner. Um, the, so the Census Department is supposed to get it to the president by December 31st. The president is then supposed to send it over to Congress in like the next week or the next two weeks, the beginning of January, when the new Congress is in session. And then Congress is supposed to take that and give it to the states um, in order for them to do the redistricting later that year. Uh, in Texas, of course, the legislative session is a certain window. And so it's very important for the legislative session, if it's going to happen on time, to happen in that particular window. Uh, so the delays that keep on happening kind of make it look like it's going to be a little bit complicated for the Texas legislature to do the redistricting. That's a whole other issue. Mm. So you have that issue going on and you have the illegal immigration uh, issue going on. And the illegal immigration issue is really what's happening in the courts. But the court is really kind of hesitant to uh, kind of step in and do anything about this um, because of everything else being kind of up in the air. And so uh, there was a lawsuit uh, in New led by New York and 22 other states or 21 other states. And <clears throat> they were suing the... Uh, President Trump in order to not allow him to remove illegal immigrants from the census data. But as the 
representative for his administration said, the Solicitor General said during the Supreme Court hearing, he was pointing out that we don't actually know if the Census Department is actually going to be able to match up the data on um, on who is an illegal immigrant with the data they have for the census by the time that it needs to get to the president. Um, and even if they are able to match that up, there's just a lot of uncertainties of like how many people it's actually going to affect, if it's actually going to affect redistricting at all. And then you have the question of, is Trump actually going to go through and on what he's his policy is stated yeah. and actually remove those from the count. And if he does that, is it actually going to affect apportionment in any certain way? Those are all unknowns at the moment. And so the Supreme court justices seem very uh, hesitant to kind of step into this case. Now they could do it. They haven't done that yet. Uh, this hearing was on Monday. Um, it could, they could step in um, sometime soon before the end of the year, or they might just wait and see if there is, a time when this is going to be a little bit more ripe and uh, allow some post-apportionment lawsuits to take place as has happened many times in the past. Um, so it's just kind of a complicated situation. Uh, there's a lot of variables that are up in the air. So yeah, it's just going to be a, a fun thing this year <laughs> and next year too. And next year. <laughs> it affects every level of government and it affects a lot of what will happen legislatively here in Texas and what the you know narrative will be in D.C. as well. So all sorts of fun there and all sorts of consequence. Thank you for covering that so thoroughly for us, Daniel. Isaiah, I'm coming to you. We've all been right. watching very closely the bills that have been filed in anticipation of the 87th legislative session and walked through you know a lot of different proposals Proposals from legislators. Walk us through one particularly that you covered earlier this week about a um, a district that is not necessarily something that other counties in Texas have. Walk us through the proposal. Yeah, your um, your hesitance and trying to think of the right word to label this thing is appropriate. <laughs> there, there is only one county board of education left in Texas, and that's the Harris County Board of Education. In nineteen eleven was when uh, county boards of education were established in Texas. They were meant to consolidate rural high schools in an effort to level the field between rural and urban school districts. So now it is somewhat ironic that our last county board of education uh, is in the rural hamlet of Harris County with the sparsely populated you know, town of Houston in it. Since my sarcasm, yeah. it's, it's our most populated county. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> The, the bill itself um, is, is really aimed only at the Harris County Department of Education. And um, it's, it was filed by State Representative Valerie Swanson from Spring. And it's not the first of its kind. She filed a very similar bill um, in many parts of the text identical in the last session. And um, what it would do is abolish the County Board of Education and... Um, and make all county boards of education illegal. But again, this is this is really the last of its kind. Kennedy County-wide common school district does exist in Kennedy County. It's not quite the same thing um, as, as the Harris County Department of Education. The Harris County Department of Education doesn't run any traditional public schools. It is also not a traditional public school district, which means it doesn't fall under the oversight of the TEA. This has provided um, a lot of motives for more leftward opponents of this particular department, the Harris County Department of Education. You know, they're worried that, um, you know, they run schools, for example, for students who are expelled or subject to disciplinary action or special needs and so forth. So there are certain activists in the area, Houston area especially, that um, have raised concerns about schools pawning off difficult students to a school a school system that is nebulous in its mission and essentially lacks oversight from the TEA. Right. And um, it's become kind of this area 51 for, for problem students in school. And um, to their credit, the, the credit of uh, the HCDE, they don't really impose a heavy tax burden on the local populace per person. It's something like $8 per homeowner. But, uh, and I mean, on top of that, they, they tend to have a pretty substantial surplus in their budget every year, but 
trustees on the board, as we've written before in the past, uh, special thanks to Holly Hansen from the area, have expressed mistrust over over the surplus and the kind of irresponsible spending that it allegedly can encourage. Um, the concrete example that I included here was an unusually high pay raise, somewhere like a 23% pay raise for the superintendent, James Colbert Jr. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, schools aren't all they run. They also run some warehouse where they process records. Um, they just, they're, they're weird, you know? It, yes. It's this weird and, and ill-defined department that is a holdover from a very, very old law that um, many legislators or some legislators find is, is just not applicable in our most populous county. Um, there was an effort last session along with, yeah, as I said before, the other iteration of Valerie Swanson's bill, um, a cooperative effort between Paul Bettencourt and Sylvia Garcia, a Democrat. Which is a bipartisan effort. Yeah, a bipartisan but fruitless effort to launch a sunset review of the board's tax revenues. So the department, Harris County Department, oh, Harris County Department of Education um, has been loath to release its tax records um, for investigation to the legislature or the TEA. And um, Swanson's bill is taking aim at them to effectively abolish them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Isaiah, that's incredibly thorough coverage. Thank you for ensuring our readers are informed question um the arguments for abolishing the body and the arguments against abolishing the body give us the quick thirty thousand foot view of those arguments uh sure you've heard a lot of the arguments for abolishing the body already mainly that it lacks oversight it imposes a redundant tax burden however light on the citizens of harris county the taxpayers of harris county and um the arguments for keeping it for not abolishing it, tend to be the same kind of arguments that you hear whenever the TEA has to intervene somewhere or chooses to intervene somewhere, we'll say. Namely, um, that there are, there are many people who are, are wary of this kind of state oversight and interference with, with you know, local doings, especially when it comes to education. Local control, those arguments. Yeah, the whole, the classic local control versus state control arguments. And... Um, because of the makeup of our state politics, especially with regards to these urban blue centers like Harris County, um, Republicans have tended to favor more state oversight, especially when it comes to education. Uh, we wrote another article recently about, um, I think Tom, well, I know he's Tom Morath, the head of the TEA. Mm-hmm. I can't remember if we wrote it or not. but um, Or Mike Morath. Yeah, yes. Morath. Excuse me. I've only seen it written. But um yeah, there. Yeah, Gina Hinojosa filed a bill um, that would put his position up for election because he's ruffled a lot of Democratic feathers for poking around in um, in struggling school districts and uh, encouraging oversight of these districts in largely blue areas like San Antonio, mm-hmm. uh, Houston, yeah, and um, with some success in some places and lack of success in others. But um, you know, as you summed up, local control versus state control. Um, it's the same conflict here, albeit with a very weird and different department. Yes. Um, whose weird and different makeup has allowed it to, to skirt oversight that, um, has, has formed the argument in other places like Houston ISD or Harlandale where the TEA has, yeah. um, has had interfere or tried to interfere. Certainly. Awesome. Isaiah, thank you so much, Daniel. I'm coming back to you. Oh, one no. thing, <laughs> one thing you've been covering a lot throughout the course of the pandemic and just in general, this is one of your beats gun sales in Texas. We have an update. Walk us through that update. Yes. So I've been following the, um, background check data that's released by the FBI on a monthly basis <clears throat> because that's just been really interesting, especially this year because gun sales have shot through the roof, um, uh, literally uh, and figuratively. Um, <laughs> actually, I don't know if any roofs were shot through technically. <laughs> Anyways, um, so, that was such a Daniel moment to have a pun and to examine his own pun as a literal statement. Both of those things were very yeah, Daniel. Okay. Yeah. Continue. It's true. Um, <laughs> anyways, there have been a ton of gun sales this year. Uh, even though, you know, if you go into a gun store right now, if you go down to Academy Sports or 
whatever local gun store that you shop at and you try buying some ammunition, chances are the shelves are going to be pretty empty. So you had a low supply, you had a low uh, amount of supply, but on the other hand, you also had a very high amount of demand. So you had again the coronavirus lockdown policies that were just driving up demand in March when you saw the highest number of gun sales, and then you also had high demand in June and July when you saw the civil unrest and the um, more violent protests that came along with that, and then you also saw some more high demand, of course, with the presidential election uh, and the debate between uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden over gun control policies. With uh, Joe Biden purporting to kind of advocating some far-reaching uh, gun control policies that many gun owners are quite frankly very scared of, and so you know whether or not that's actually going to affect anything, uh, you know that's yet to be seen, especially with the uh, Senate elections that are still up in the air in Georgia, uh, whether or not Republicans will control the Senate or not, will kind of determine how legislation pans out over the next two years, um, but. Uh, even so, people are kind of worried that a Biden administration means that there's going to be more gun control policies, so that's going to be driving up demand as well. So you have the low supply, you have the high demand, you have uh, different gun manufacturers, firearm am ammunition manufacturers, who are saying that they've had a backlog of um, over a year's worth of ammunition in excess of a billion dollars. Um, and that was Vista Outdoor CEO Chris Metz who said that uh, in a uh, investor call in November, the, the first part of November, just after the election. Um, so you've got all that going on. It just adds up to a lot, a lot of people wanting to buy guns and not really a lot of guns to buy, but all the same, people are going out and buying what they can. Um, and so Texas has already shattered its previous records. Uh, so has the country and the number of background checks that have been conducted for firearms. Uh, now, one of the th interesting things that I saw going through the data, you know, if you look at the national level, um, it does break things down on the background checks that are done for permits for firearm purchases or, or per permits to carry rather, and then for firearm purchases by handguns and long guns. Um, and there's some other stuff in there as well, um, like permit rechecks that some states do. Texas doesn't do that. Now, one of the, the fascinating things about that comparing Texas and the United States while the number of license to carry applications in the country um, actually went has gone down compared to last year uh, during the same first eleven months, um, it's actually gone up quite a bit in Texas. Um, you know, I'm sure part of that has to do with the different lockdown policies and uh, in other states where lockdown policies might be a little bit tighter. Mm -hmm. People might not be going out to get licenses because they're not able to. Um, but in Texas, that's not the case. The number of both permits and purchases for long guns and handguns have all gone up uh, substantially over the past year. Um, so that just continues to happen. Even though there's no ammo on the shelves, people are going and buying guns. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for, as always, providing such important context for those kinds of conversations. Gentlemen, we, in the absence of um, Bradley, and you know, it's always fun to be able to talk through different articles and spotlight pieces from different members of our team who are spread out throughout the state and unable to join us on this podcast. I wanted to give you all the opportunity to spotlight an article from uh, one of our other team members and just kind of walk through that piece really quickly and give our readers a little bit of a snippet of that before so they, and they can always go and read it at the texan.news and read the full article. Um, but which one of you would like to start by highlighting one of our one of our pals? Uh, I guess I'll go. I've got one pulled up already. Um, although I do want to say, in memory of Brad, he will be missed. <laughs> though he's not with us now. Um, Hayden wrote an article about Garland ISD that uh, I just thought was well written. You know, I, I happen to like articles that uh are are dry you know <laughs> it might, it might surprise point. you yeah but yeah. um i mean like holly for example like she and i both really dig the same kind of books and poems and things like that but um i just hate seeing that kind of thing in news reporting mm -hmm. you know i don't like to see powerful stories i like to see informative stories mm. so anyway hayden did that here and uh with actual quote gathering and reporting and background that, um, you know, refrains from commentary. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty much just describing our mission statement and the way that 
we tend to write our articles in general, but um, ISDs are a mine of news that is, you know, rarely touched by most media. But um, they they exert quite a bit of control, not even just over taxes, but you know, over children mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> who grow up to become adults. <laughs> and uh, so there, it's an important subject. Um, and I don't know, I, I just dig Hayden's writing style in this article. Headline is Garland ISD grappling with $32 million deficit after voters reject tax increase. Yeah. And so it starts off with background and um, then gets into the, the monetary issues at hand presently and um, then goes into alternate futures, some science fiction. You know, if the bond had passed or the request had passed, the funds would have gone towards teacher raises and and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. But um, anyway, I've ranted far too much about this dry and boring but informative article. (laughs) Um, Hayden always finds a way to get right down to the nitty gritty and it's his, his writing style is always appreciated by our readers. And yeah, certainly Garland ISD is definitely grappling with this reality that the bond that they all but were assured would pass did not. And now have to, you know, rework a lot of their budgeting process. Daniel. Hmm. Yeah, I was going to cheat on this. You know, please do. Is it one of your own articles? Yeah. (laughs) One of my own articles from last week. So it's not from this week, but it was from last week during the week of Thanksgiving when we didn't have a podcast. Um, We had a great article. We had a great title. Thanks for sticking with the title. You know, that one took a little bit of courage for me to pull the trigger on. And you like I was surprised that you didn't cut other stuff as well. And I'll, I'll tell the audience why I love puns. Um, <laughs> the title of our article is Texas lawmakers have high hopes for marijuana legislation. <laughs> and it stayed. Um, and it stayed. It's an accurate, it's an accurate title. It's very fitting. The pun is there. It's not too on the nose. Now in the excerpt that we have right below that, uh, I, I'm a little bit more <laughs> pointed with my pun. Um, and I say without getting too deep, into the weeds. <laughs> Here's a look at the marijuana-related legislation uh, proposed for the upcoming session in Texas. Um, and then I do have some other puns scattered throughout the article, and that was fun. <laughs> You've got to name them, dude. You've got to name one or two of the other. Okay, so are like masterful. also in the a joint resolution. Yeah, the joint resolution. Like that is actually. That's what they're called. They're it's called the joint name. resolutions. That's how a constitutional amendment is. There's some constitutional amendments uh, to legalized marijuana, um, both for medical purposes and for recreational use. Um, you know, whether those, I think those are a little bit more, um, unrealistic to actually see that passed rather than the other legislation. Um, the other legislation, of course, you have basically the same, uh, bills to legalize or even decriminalize marijuana, both for recreational and medical purposes. Uh, there's various bills that are floating around. Um, there's a little bit more of a push this year compared to the previous session uh, for the full-out legalization of marijuana. Um, last uh, During the last session, Representative Joe Moody uh, from El Paso introduced a bill uh, which was interestingly co-authored uh, by a handful of people, including Representative Dade Phelan, who is the presumptive speaker a new speaker for the next session. Um, and so he last session introduced this legislation to decriminalize marijuana. Uh, this year he's handed the reins to that over to representative Aaron Zwiener. And instead he's pursuing his own legislation to fully legalize it. Um, but he's also supporting Zwiener's bill, uh, which was his bill. So there's a little bit of bill juggling going on there. Um, <laughs> but uh, so those are those are kind of the main policies that are out now. There are some Republicans, uh, like I mentioned, uh, Phelan had sponsored this bill or co-authored this bill back in twenty whatever year that was 20, 2019. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's crazy. Wow, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so back in twenty nineteen, back in twenty nineteen, like it was. <laughs> this is I'm really sorry. getting Daniel. Daniel, <laughs> this is a speed bump for Daniel over it here. Is. I just do you notice I always do that when I'm thinking about time. Yeah, you you do. Yeah, that's. I don't know why. Too much Nolan. <laughs> You're right. That's actually so <laughs> true. Too much Nolan in your diet. Too much. Um, <laughs> yes. So you've got those. You see, Republicans are also interested. That's where I'm yes, going. Yes. There you go. Um, some Republicans are. Uh, Representative Steve Toth has a bill that would decriminalize uh, some use of marijuana uh, for the small 
possession who had uh, lost it in my place in the article. It's it's in here. I, I believe it was <laughs> to drop it from a Class B misdemeanor to a Class C misdemeanor. Class C is the lower one, right? You're doing, doing great. great. You're doing Whichever so well. Whichever one that you, you can't get arrested for. I'm just going to let you for. keep talking. That's Class C. I'm just, yeah, I'm just going to let yeah. you keep going. Class C, just like my funny. talking. Right now. Yeah. Classy. <laughs> oh, my. Wow. Okay. Uh, some other puns that I included in the article. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Lord in I heaven. was talking about how I was going to, bl- they're, they're trying to blaze a path. Dan Patrick bluntly said something. Yes. Right? Dan Patrick. And that's another good point that I mentioned in my article, which is also important. Um, last time there was a, this, I believe it's the same decriminalization bill that we're talking about from, uh, from Phelan and Joe Moody and a couple others. After that passed the house, it was going to go to the Senate. And in my article, I state correctly, accurately that Lieutenant governor Dan Patrick had tweeted out quite bluntly that, uh, the legislation would be dead in the Senate. Uh, and it was, it did, he didn't send it to a committee. Uh, and that's where it died. Now that's kind of important because, you know, if you have feeling who's a presumptive speaker, um, it's definitely possible that it, that a legislation could go through the house. I think that's very likely that some kind of legislation will pass in the house, uh, to at least decriminalize, uh, small possession of marijuana. Um, if not legalize it for more medical purposes or other purposes as well. Um, but that being said, what happens in the Senate is really the big question. Um, will Dan Patrick once again kind of oppose this legislation at all costs and say, no, we're not going to legalize marijuana. We're not going to decriminalize it at all. Like we're against it. Um, we're going to see what happens there. Now I reached out to uh, Patrick's office, did not get a word back. Um, so I don't know if his opinion has changed at all in the past two years, but we will find out. Certainly. Those were, those were my big puns. Those were your, yeah. well, I'm really glad was that fun. was, I got it out of my system. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> and I think the, the impending Thanksgiving holiday, you know, as I was editing this piece just provided me with enough, I don't know, jolliness where, my usual Grinch attitude toward puns was not as uh, prevalent. So it was, it. It, it was good timing yeah. for you. You timed it well to get this uh, through the process. Um, well, gentlemen, thank you so much for covering that. Let's talk a little bit about, a little bit about Christmas. We're Sweet. into Thanksgiving. We're on yeah. to Christmas. There we go. Um, first of all, do you guys have a good Thanksgiving? Yeah. Wow. So yes. much silence about Fantastic. your Thanksgiving. Well, I was waiting for- <laughs> We were waiting for Brad to respond. That, yeah, Brad May is he rest. slacking. May he, <laughs> May he rest in peace in Ohio. Yes. At least for another week. May he rest in peace up there. This is this is horrible. The far okay. north. Where yeah, it's cold it's far and north. snowy. It is Just like snowy. Christmas time. Yes, it, yeah, Daniel knew that would get me. <laughs> Speaking yeah. of that, have you all considered the many similarities between the story of Frosty the Snowman and the New Testament? <laughs> what? Well, no. comparing Ohio to heaven made me think of that. Have, have you I've, just ever... Cons- no. My friend Nabil pointed this out to me, um, so credit to him. This, this isn't my idea, but uh, he was taking some religion class on Christianity, and uh, he didn't know a thing about it because he's Muslim. And so then he was like learning all this stuff academically for the first time as an adult. And he compared and, it to uh, Frosty. Yes. You know, because uh, he's got... Uh, I mean, it's not a total resurrection... Well, okay, in the beginning, start there. He's kind of uh, miraculously conceived, if you think about it, that magic hat. Interesting. You know? I mean, he's got this following of children, and uh, he's fighting this, like, sorcerer. Anyway. That's true. You know, he doesn't, I like, totally it. die and come back to life, but the yeah. melting and re-solidifying, yeah. you know, and then he eventually goes away up north. <laughs> To be with Santa, and he'll be back again someday. <laughs> wow! You've never thought about that. It's How, all there. Why would I have thought about that before? That's that. Man. There's some similarity. Yeah, he could he could be a Christ figure, I guess. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen no, Frosty. We're not but, going. No, okay. We have so many thoughts about this. We're going to move well, on. I mean, this is a literary device that yeah. many many great works use. It's true. Yeah. It's everywhere. Yeah. How about that, dude? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings. Just kidding. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's, okay. Yeah. We're getting, we're getting really into the weeds here. Oh my gosh. I can't believe I just said that. Um, after our previous conversation, uh, but your Thanksgivings were good. Daniel, you had a good Thanksgiving with your family yes. in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Isaiah, you were home with your family yes. up in North Texas. Uh, I went to Arizona. It was great. Brad's in Ohio where it's snowing. Mish was here with her family. Sarah is in Disney. Disney. The happiest place on earth. Yeah. Disney World. Yeah. Yes. Land and world are, are distinct, right? Yes. The world okay. is on the right side of the country. Land Correct. is on the left side. Depending yes. on which way you're looking. Now, if you're looking at the map upside down. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Thank you for that. Um, this is such a great podcast. Okay. Um, favorite Christmas song? Hmm. That's a tough one. Mm. It might be Oh Holy Night. That's a good that that's up there for mine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think the lyrics of the first Noel just aren't that good. What? But Oh Holy Night has some great <laughs> lyrics and just a great chord progression. It's have just heard, cool, man. Have you? Because I know you, you know, have dabbled in French. Have you read the first Noel? <laughs> Isaiah just dabbed. Um, have you? <laughs> yeah. Have you read the first Noel lyrics in French before? I have not. No. You should. They're actually much better than the English versions. Okay, I didn't know it was a translation. Yeah. Okay. It's, and it's yeah. it's a little different. Um. So you said Oh Holy Night is yours. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, you can't go wrong with Silent Night either. Yep. Or Joy to the World. Yep. Now, I like Mannheim Steamroller. <gasps> Classic. Their their Joy to the World rendition is great. Then how, are you also a fan of um, a Trans-Siberian Orchestra? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah, yeah sure. Oh. It's great. Love it. <laughs> They've got that one cool song. Yeah, that orchestra. one cool song. They, exactly. do, they do lots of stuff. It just sounds very... Trans-Siberian. <laughs> Lord in heaven. It's like the one song that all the Christmas, how, like when you have a house that's just decked out with Christmas lights and they have a music show, mm. that's the song they use. Yeah. It's that, that Trans-Siberian ever, orchestra song. I haven't seen like an outside house playing mm-hmm. music. Yeah. I haven't actually seen this. You've never been to a Christmas light show on a private residence? No. At a private residence? No. We're going to have to figure out how to make that happen. Um, but it's yeah. a big thing. Yeah, it's a big deal. All but, the rock stations, like 92.5 in Dallas. Um, I can't remember the the number of the one here. I've got it on my radio. But yeah, like around this time when they start playing Christmas music, if they do, that's the Trans-Siberian Orchestra's Carol of the Bells is the one Christmas mm-hmm. rock song. Well, I don't know. I guess if you count some of those ones from like the 50s and 60s, like... Rocking around the Christmas tree, mm-hmm. you know, which is a classic. It is. It's a classic. It's just not something you play right after Def Leppard, correct, on the radio that's or something. Very true. But, yeah, that's yeah. very true. I think um, Oh Holy Night and Silent Night are my two favorites, but Oh Oh Holy Night is my favorite. I think. Did you guys hear Ben Rector came out with a Thanksgiving song? That was pretty fun. No. Yeah. Anyway, because hmm. people always, you know are mad about Thanksgiving not having music and people listen to Christmas music too soon. So he <laughs> came up with a Thanksgiving song. Podcast. Yeah, you made a great a yeah. great argument. Yeah. Well, Ben Rector has a Thanksgiving there song. So now that it's over, you can enjoy that. Yeah. Now that it's actually the season for Christmas music, you can enjoy that. Let's just, let's give Christmas a taste of its own medicine to play some <laughs> Thanksgiving music now. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. Oh, a taste of its own medicine. <laughs> Oh, man. Okay, folks. Well, um, thank you for being with us on this delightful edition of our weekly roundup podcast. Mary. Um, oh, Mary. It's, yeah. It is very Mary. Um, I do want to make a plug here for something that's very exciting here at the Texan. If you have listened to our podcast all the way through, I would qualify you as a news junkie. And for the news junkies in your life, make sure to go to the Texan.news, sign up for to be a subscriber, even go to our store. We have a fake news stops here mug. We're running a promotion right now. It's an exciting time to do this. And we're we literally have, you know, Christmas coming up and it's the time to make a purchase like this. So for the news junkie in your life, go to the Texan.news forward slash mug and make it happen. Folks, thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next week thank you all so much for listening if you've been enjoying our podcast it would be awesome if you would review us on itunes and if there's a guest you'd love to hear on our show give us a shout on twitter tweet at the texan news 
We're so proud to have you standing with us as we seek to provide real journalism in an age of disinformation. We're paid for exclusively by readers like you, so it's important we all do our part to support The Texan by subscribing and telling your friends about us. God bless you, and God bless Texas. Texas.